History This Week, October 8th, 1939. I'm Sally Helm. In the Tibetan city of Lhasa, thousands of people have flooded into the streets. There are musicians, military officers, noblemen in fine silk robes, all following a palanquin covered in yellow silk. It's the size of a small room, held up by about 24 men. And inside is a very important person. He's just arrived in Lhasa. His name is Lamo Derndrup, and he's a child, just four years old. This boy grew up in a small town in the borderlands between China and Tibet. His parents were farmers. When he was young, Flamo Derndrip liked to play inside the chicken coops, sitting on a nest and making clucking noises. And he liked to pretend that he was going on a long journey to Lhasa. This was long before he'd ever seen that palanquin covered in yellow silk. But the boy would pack his bags and tell everyone, I'm going to Lhasa. I'm going to Lhasa. One day, there's a knock at the door of his house. It's a group of high lamas, important religious figures in Tibetan Buddhism. They're from Lhasa, and they ask to stay the night. The boy talks with them. Later, they play a strange game where the men ask him to pick from among three old cups which one was his. Eventually, Lamo Derndrup makes a three-month journey over hills and rivers and plains, watching wild horses and roaming yaks, until finally, in October of 1939, he arrives in Lhasa. There, a crowd of thousands welcomes the four-year-old boy as the 14th Dalai Lama. The Tibetans respect him not because he is a king, they respect him because they consider him to be the 14th in a series of manifestations in Tibet of the guardian saint of the Tibetan people. Today, becoming the Dalai Lama, the spiritual and political leader of the Tibetan people. He wasn't voted into office. He wasn't chosen after years of training. He didn't interview for the job. He was found living quietly in a village with his family. Then he was raised by monks in a city far from his home, and he assumed his full political powers at age 15, right in the middle of a war. How do you prepare for something like that? And what can the Dalai Lama's very unusual life teach the rest of us about what it means to be a leader? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. In 1993, an American journalist named Thomas Laird is living in Nepal. 
He's been living there at that point for 20 years. And he's begun doing some research on the history of Tibet. He has a question that he thinks the office of the Dalai Lama can answer. So he calls them up, thinking he'll speak with some bureaucrat. Instead, they said, well, would you like to come and ask him? (laughs) Him meaning His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So Laird says, um, definitely yes. And he travels to India for a meeting with the 14th Dalai Lama himself. I was surprised at how funny he is. At the same time, I was surprised at how nervous I was. When he thinks back on that meeting now, Laird remembers the human details. I remember the frayed seam of his T-shirt that had been washed so often that it was, you know, fraying up around his neckline. The smell of soap as I leaned in to clip the lavalier mic to that frayed T-shirt. How pink his cheeks are and his hands. There was something about his physical presence. The Dalai Lama is not a god. He's a real person. And this meeting is the beginning of a many-year relationship between the two men. They end up recording about 60 hours of interviews together. And they write a book about the history of Tibet through the Dalai Lama's eyes. Slowly, if I was willing to listen, he began to take me into his world. The Dalai Lama's world, in a way, it begins even before the Dalai Lama himself can remember. This title, Dalai Lama, is a Mongolian phrase that means ocean or Mr. Ocean or ocean of compassion. You can translate it in in different ways. The Dalai Lama Laird knows is the 14th person to bear that title. The Tibetans consider him to be the 14th manifestation in Tibet of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. The Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara is a major figure in Buddhism. It's believed that he worked with the Buddha way back around the 5th century BC to bring freedom from suffering to all living beings. Buddhists think of him as the embodiment of compassion. At the time when the Buddha was dying, Avalokiteshvara said to the Buddha, oh, you can't go now, you haven't been to Tibet. And the Buddha said, oh, Avalokiteshvara, that will be your job. You will take special responsibility for the people of the lands of snow. So this Bodhisattva was actually the father creator of the Tibetan people. Each Dalai Lama, Tibetan Buddhists believe, is a manifestation of this same Bodhisattva. This is subtle, but the 14th Dalai Lama is not a reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama, and the 13th is not a reincarnation of the 12th, etc. Rather, each of the 14 Dalai Lamas is a human manifestation of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. And when one Dalai Lama dies, another takes his place. In December of 1933, the 13th Dalai Lama dies at the age of 57. When he dies, he's sitting on a throne and his head tilts slightly towards the Northeast. So that was one clue about where he might be reborn. The monk seeing these clues is a young but powerful member of the Dalai Lama's council, Redding Rinpoche. He's then serving as regent in charge, and he'll be in charge until the new Dalai Lama, whoever he may be, reaches age 20. Right now, Redding Rinpoche's most important job is to find that person. 
the 14th Dalai Lama. In the weeks following the 13th Dalai Lama's death, an unusual fungus grows on the northeastern side of the shrine containing his body. And then Redding Rinpoche has a series of visions of a temple, of a house, and of a letter, the Tibetan letter Ah. The fungus and the letter give him an idea about where to look. He sends out the search teams. Most of them heading to the northeast, to Amdo. It made sense. Ah for Amdo, and it was in the right location. It's not the easiest place to go on a mission like this. In 1937, the province of Amdo is under the power of a Chinese warlord. And the relationship between Tibet and China, then and now, is tense. At that point, there's a dispute over sovereignty. China believes that Tibet is part of China, and Tibet believes that it's independent, its own nation. In 1937, Amdo, this border region, is a kind of gray zone. It's in Tibet, but it also has a large Chinese population. And the search team believes that the new Dalai Lama might be there. So they go. And when they arrive in the region, they begin to hear rumors about a fearless boy living in a small village. When they get to that village, they find the house from Redding's vision. And the Lama leading the search team decides to enter the house in disguise. He wants to observe the child inside without anyone knowing. He swaps clothes with his servants. So the servants are dressed as high llamas and the high llama as a servant. Then they knock on the door. And they ask if they may spend the night there, which is very common in the Himalayas at that time. So while the high llamas are being entertained in the front room, the servants of these llamas are in the kitchen. But really, it's the disguised llama in the kitchen. And there, he meets this two-year-old child, Lamo Derndrup. The llama is holding a set of prayer beads that belonged to the 13th Dalai Lama. The boy comes right up to him. He is fearless. And he says, give me my beads. The story goes that he said this in the central Tibetan language, even though he didn't speak it. He'd grown up speaking a local Chinese dialect. And yet, the Lama said, he was fluent. Which, of course, would have been reasonably impossible since no one in his family spoke central Tibetan. A few days later, the Lama comes back, this time dressed as himself. He lays out several items, some of which belonged to the 13th Dalai Lama, and they ask the boy to choose which of them belongs to him. And the, the Dalai Lama gets all of them correct. Now they're sure. This two-year-old child is the 14th Dalai Lama. They don't yet tell him this, and they don't tell his family. They just say he's a reincarnated Lama, basically a very special monk. He does not know that he is a Dalai Lama. He does not know that he is anybody special. He's just a young boy. And he felt, you know, pretty alone and, and very frightened. Alone because he's staying at a nearby monastery, separated from his parents. He's staying there until he can go to the city of Lhasa, where he'll get his religious education. But to get the boy to Lhasa, the regent Redding needs to solve a problem. 
the local Chinese warlord sees that this boy is important somehow, and he won't let him go without a bribe. Redding eventually agrees and pays a ransom. The whole thing takes several years to negotiate. But finally, on October 8, 1939, the boy arrives in Lhasa. And his new life begins. A big part of this new life is studying. These are the years when this boy from Amdo is learning the skills he'll need to be the leader of Tibet. First, he gets a strict, formal education. He learns logic, fine arts, Sanskrit grammar, and Tibetan medicine. And the most important topic is Buddhist philosophy. The Dalai Lama basically has to memorize important texts and be able to repeat them back on command. You sit down with your back to a tree, and someone else stands in front of you and points at you and says, what does it say in the Prajnaparamita on chapter 32? Can you tell me now? Boom. And you have to come up with the the answer immediately from memory. He also learns the important monastic rules that will come to govern his life. Monks are celibate. Monks don't tell lies. Monks don't eat after the middle of the day. And he has to learn perfect handwriting. For this, the Dalai Lama spends a lot of time copying out a very important document. He reads it over and over. It is the last testament of his predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama. The 13th Dalai Lama in his last testament says, our two most powerful neighbors are India and China, both of whom have very powerful armies. Because of this, it is important that we too maintain an efficient army of young and well-trained soldiers. If we do not make preparations to defend ourselves, we will have very little chance of survival. Yet, while the Dalai Lama is doing this handwriting practice, he also learns that his regents are actually diverting money from the army to the monasteries. So you can imagine the young Dalai Lama copying this out over and over and over, and slowly he began to understand that Tibet was a deeply troubled nation. He begins to understand this not because of his formal education, but from a group of unexpected teachers at the palace, which is known as the Patala. They are the sweepers. The sweepers are the people in the household of the Dalai Lama who work as servants, but they're also monks who are taking care of the different chapels in the Patala. The sweepers, unlike the tutors, are not part of Tibet's elite. And they are the ones who really take care of the young Dalai Lama. They play with him and feed him and keep him happy. From this, he learns an important lesson. The people who feed you and treat you nicely are the people you trust. People love you when you're kind to them. That is the essence of what the sweepers were teaching them. And the sweepers have some troubling things to say about a powerful person in the Dalai Lama's world. The regent Redding Rinpoche, the monk who took over after the 13th Dalai Lama died. So the regent should be celibate. The sweepers let him know that the Redding regent is not celibate. This is the Dalai Lama's mentor, the person he's supposed to mirror. And the regent is falling short on one of the principal vows. That becomes a big problem when the Dalai Lama turns 11, because it's time for him to take his higher vows. 
those had to be administered by a celibate monk. And everybody knew that Redding was not celibate. One day, the Dalai Lama gets some surprising news. Redding is going to go away for a little while on a, quote, retreat. Behind the scenes, he had agreed to give up his power to another tutor, Taktar Rinpoche, for just a few years. The agreement is Taktar will give the young Dalai Lama his vows, and then Redding will take over again. But when the time comes for Redding to return, Taktar doesn't step down. He's decided he likes his newfound power. And so there was an unspoken conflict between the two regions. Eventually, that conflict breaks out into the open when the tension escalates. Redding was actually taking bribes from the Chinese. He is slowly allowing the Chinese back into Tibet. There were definitely people who opposed that. There was a big conflict between people who were relatively pro-Chinese and those who were very anti-Chinese. At the height of the conflict between the two regions, Toktar finds a letter in Redding's hand. It says that they should kill Toktar Rinpoche. So the, the, the fighting between the two regions breaks out, and there's actual shelling and, and gun firing in the city of Lhasa and in Lhasa Valley. Eventually, Redding Rinpoche is killed, and the fighting stops. The Dalai Lama has watched this whole thing unfold from his room in the palace. Because he was not in a powerful enough situation to ask questions or to criticize his region. He'll experience this feeling of powerlessness again and again in his life. And this whole episode teaches him to be careful, diplomatic. And it also teaches him something about what not to be. Power hungry, greedy. That led to strife, division, violence, death. These experiences form the Dalai Lama's earliest education. And they come against the backdrop of his education in Buddhist philosophy and meditation. Laird told us this means that the Dalai Lama sees political events, like the battle between his regents, in a very particular way. So if you're a normal person and you've not done anything to be aware of how your mind functions, or to be aware of how greed, anger, ignorance, lust, and pride dominate the body, speech, and mind of everyone around you, you don't see history operating. You, you see the general on the horse. You don't see the army behind him. And the, the Dalai Lama is very aware of these multiple levels. No one thing causes an event in history. In October of 1950, when the Dalai Lama is 15 years old, the general on the horse arrives. Tensions between Tibet and China boil over, and the Dalai Lama has to step in to his full political power. What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a Nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. 
Go to Nectarsleep.com. October 7th, 1950. The highest ministers of the Tibetan government are out for a picnic, having a few beers. Meanwhile, in Lhasa, a low-ranking officer gets a message from the border. The Chinese army has invaded. And when he reached the, the army officers in Tibet on the radio, they said the ministers of state were out at a picnic and couldn't be disturbed. So that officer in far eastern Tibet, he actually got really angry and began to scream over the radio, I don't give a about their picnic. Tell them we're being invaded. The Tibetan army is quickly overwhelmed. And China's People's Liberation Army gains control. The Dalai Lama is hearing about this on the radio, sitting in his palace. In 1950, he, he was just a boy without any sweeping global awareness. His regions had still had absolute power. But that is about to change. The regent turns to the 15-year-old boy and says, it's time for you to lead. And so, the Dalai Lama gains political power five years early. Suddenly, at this most tragic moment, this young 15-year-old boy has been thrust into full responsibility. With no proper army to defend themselves, Tibet asks for military and diplomatic backup from other countries. The Tibetan government is sending a message to the UN saying, we're being invaded. And the Chinese government is saying, no, no, Tibet's always been part of China. It's not an invasion. Countries like the UK and the US decide not to get involved. This is a blow for the young, idealistic Dalai Lama who thought that the U.S. in particular might come to his aid in defense of freedom. But eventually... He realizes that, you know, neither Britain or India or the United States is going to do anything about the Chinese invasion of Tibet. And so he has to work with the Chinese. So at that point, he begins to have dialogue with them. The Dalai Lama is developing a philosophy of leadership. And it comes down to a simple fact. All of these world leaders are just people. When he sees a Chinese general for the first time, he looks through a hole in the wall as they enter the audience room. And he realizes, oh, they're just human beings. He applies this philosophy not just to other leaders, but also to himself. He says he's just like any other monk, no more special. He sees his own actions and those of the Tibetan people as flawed. He said, when China invades Tibet, we can't just blame the Chinese. We too must take responsibility. Rather than being angry with the Chinese, what, what could we have done in Tibet? So he feels that he has to take responsibility. If, if you've been burnt by the fire, you have to heal by the fire. And I asked him, what did he mean by that? And he said, well, the invasion came from China, so I have to go to China to deal with the fire. For nine years, the Dalai Lama stays in Lhasa and tries to work with China. He's interested in the ideals of communism, its commitment to the common people. But the dialogue only goes so far. He realizes that, of course, the Chinese are no more true to the ideals of communism than Cold War America was true to the ideals of democracy. Both sides of these power structures, 
that didn't care about their ideals. And he's had this deep exposure to real politics and how the powerful treat the weak. He, he realizes greed, anger, ignorance, lust, and pride dominate the body, speech, and mind of Democrats and communists, of the left and the right. Of course, this realization is coming in a very politicized context. Then, in 1959, things come to a head. The Tibetan people rise up in revolt against China. And the Dalai Lama realizes that ordinary people will be killed trying to defend him. So he decides to flee the country. He escapes across the Indian border, dressed as a regular Tibetan soldier. And he begins an exile that has extended to this day. And that's when he really entered the world stage. The Dalai Lama uses his platform to argue for Tibetan independence. But eventually, he realizes that's unrealistic. And he ends up arguing for a sort of compromise position, saying that Tibet should be an autonomous region within China. China won't agree to this. And meanwhile, as the Dalai Lama faces this political impasse, his profile is rising in the West. The Dalai Lama becomes a figure on the world stage as the world changes. The whole 60s has gone by, and suddenly Buddhism is a hot topic in the West, and many people want to hear the Dalai Lama when he speaks about Buddhism. The world is suddenly interested in his message. His message calls for compassion, empathy, and something that has become a bit of a buzzword, mindfulness. He says... I'm not asking you to believe in Buddhism. I'm asking you to see that moment when anger seizes your hand and you find yourself about to hit someone you love. When you can see that, you can stop that. That's the mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't sitting in a room and learning how to breathe slowly. The practice of mindfulness is seeing failure to be mindful. the Dalai Lama becomes not just a leader in Tibet, not just a thorn in China's side, but a major world figure, a leader. Even though, as when he was just a kid watching his regents fight, he doesn't ever achieve all that much political power. Still, he's invited to speak on panels alongside heads of state. He wins the Congressional Gold Medal, the Nobel Peace Prize. And Laird says he's a leader who's not overly focused on personal power, especially not power over others. His leadership style is always about taking responsibility. What can we do to be better? When the Dalai Lama was given the Congressional Gold Medal by President George W. Bush, Laird was there at the ceremony. And he said he saw something that reminded him of one of the main lessons he learned from the Dalai Lama about what leadership can look like. I went up there and I had really disliked George W. Bush's policies. <laughs> and as the first speakers were speaking, I saw the Dalai Lama sitting beside George W. Bush, holding his hand and smiling. And I remembered moments when I had sat with the Dalai Lama and he would hold my hand. And I, I remembered, you know, one of the things that he'd always said was, 
you know, we're all brothers and sisters. And that moment in the rotunda, he made me realize that, you know, we may disagree with one another, but at the end of the day, we're all humans on this planet together. The Dalai Lama may or may not have agreed with Bush's politics, but he was still able to see the president as a human being, perhaps because he sees himself that way, not as some idea of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but as another person among billions of people. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device with new videos added every week. To start your free one-month trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week.